Hello, and welcome to Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is U.S. Asia Institute's summer podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with first-hand knowledge of Asia. Our guest on this episode of Asia Inscripted is Courtney Weatherby, a research analyst with the Stimson Center's Southeast Asia and Energy, Water, and Sustainability Programs. Her research focuses on sustainable infrastructure and energy development challenges in Southeast Asia and Indo-Pacific, particularly food, water, energy nexus issues in the greater Mekong sub-region. In early 2019, Courtney also served as a U.S.-Japan-Southeast Asia Fellow at the East-West Center in Washington, focusing her fellowship research on U.S.-Japan collaboration on energy infrastructure in Southeast Asia. In the following clips, Courtney speaks to Vivian and me about energy and sustainability in Cambodia and Southeast Asia in general. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. We begin the episode with Courtney discussing her current research on energy and sustainability in Southeast Asia. I'm the research analyst with the Southeast Asia program at the Stimson Center, which is a think tank here in D.C. that mostly focuses on non-traditional security issues and development challenges around the world. The Southeast Asia program focuses on food, water, and energy developments, particularly in mainland Southeast Asia. I sort of fell sideways into the Southeast Asia thing. Um, I started out studying China and China's policy as an undergrad student. Um, And when I was doing my studies, it was at a time when China's footprint abroad was only just starting to get attention as an academic subject. So when I did my thesis, I started looking at China's investment projects in Southeast Asia, specifically hydropower projects in Myanmar and in other countries in the Mekong region. So that sort of just spiked my interest. Um, I really wanted to look more into this issue. So when I did grad school, I decided to focus specifically on Southeast Asia, looking at what China and other development partners and investors were doing in the region and sort of the social, environmental and political fallout from those investments. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for being here with us. So to start off, can you provide our listeners with a brief background on Cambodia, um, you know, in terms of its geography, its natural resources, and what it's known for internationally or also just regionally? Of course. So Cambodia is one of the 10 members of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. It's one of the smaller ones population-wise with about 16 million people. Uh, When you compare this to its larger neighbors of Thailand and Vietnam, which have little under 50 million and a little over 90 million, respectively, you can get a sense of how Cambodia fits into sort of the political and economic landscape in Southeast Asia. It is located right between Thailand and Vietnam with a coastal area along the border before leading into the Delta area in Southern Vietnam. One of the biggest defining characteristics for Cambodia is its shaping by the Mekong River and other water systems. So the Mekong River starts up in China and then flows south, forming a border between Laos and Myanmar, through Thailand, through going into and through Laos, and then through Cambodia and Vietnam until it runs into the ocean. So this river really connects the region, and for Cambodia, it's a very defining characteristic because most of the country is in the floodplain for the Mekong River, the other tributary river systems into it, and the most unique characteristic, the Tonle Sap Lake. Tonle Sap literally means Great Lake, And it's unique in all the world because it is the only country that has an annual reversal where this lake usually flows out into the Tonle Sap River, into the Mekong, and down to the sea. 
But when the monsoon seasons come, the pressure of the water in the Mekong is so great that it actually reverses. So the entire river of the Tomesa turns around and flows back into the lake. This is sort of the beating heart of Cambodia because it stabilizes, maintains the fisheries, the sediment, the agricultural productivity, and has sort of made Cambodia's productivity and food security what it is today. So that's sort of the defining geographic characteristic that sets Cambodia apart. And can you tell us a little bit more about the greater Mekong region? What other countries use the resources provided by the river and how might that distribution of resources play out among those countries? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, there are sort of six countries that the Mekong River flows through. The greater Mekong subregion is sort of an acronym, the GMS, that was created in the 1990s by the international community to look at sort of the region of the southern provinces of China and then the lower Mekong countries, viewing them as tied together by the river and sort of by a shared and and sometimes conflict-filled history and in need of great connectivity in order to really unlock economic growth. So the GMS as sort of a concept is both geographic in scope and also very closely related to infrastructure with the idea that if you build better navigation, railways, roads, standards uh, for trade between these countries, it would truly unlock economic growth for the region. The Mekong River as sort of that shining blue thread that connects the region overall is, is often one of the more contested in terms of resource management, largely because water plays such a key role in regional food security and water security, of course, but also in energy security. One of the sort of unique characteristics for the Mekong countries compared to other countries in the region is the large amount of hydropower that forms the basis for their energy systems. So Laos's energy system is almost entirely hydropower. Myanmar's largest energy potential and much of their energy system to date is, is hydropower. Vietnam has nearly a quarter of its energy from hydropower. China's Yunnan province alone produces more, more power than most of Thailand. So you can see sort of this big role that water plays in providing energy and driving economic growth for the region. Because it's a monsoonal climate, there's also sort of this dry season, wet season tension. So in the, in the wet season, the only issue with resource management tends to be management of floods to, to avoid them, to make sure that water is not being, for instance, released to too much from dams upstream and causing flooding downstream. When it truly becomes a more questionable, contentious issue is when you look at times of drought, where countries and dams tend to hold back water in order to preserve water in the reservoir to produce power or supply irrigation, and you suddenly have scarcity. Or when you're looking at the impacts of infrastructure on the other key environmental flows like fish migration, sediment deposits that contain really important nutrients, and other environmental resources and flows. So that tends to bring things into a much more contentious and debated topic between the countries because there's not a framework in place to truly manage things in a collaborative manner. So compared to the other countries within the Mekong region, but also in Southeast Asia in general, where does Cambodia stand in terms of its sustainability and environmental practices? And why do you think that is? So I think one of the biggest challenges for Southeast Asia as a whole, and I I think this is in many ways a broader challenge for developing countries as a whole, is the difference between environmental law on paper and the implementation of environmental law. When you look at the, the law on paper and sort of the institutional structure, Cambodia actually has some very unique advantages for the region. For instance, it's the only country that has a truly interministerial platform, which is called the National Council for Sustainable Development, that brings together stakeholders from each of the other ministries, many of which are very powerful in defending their own interests, 
and gets them all at the same table to sort of negotiate on things, to clarify things, to coordinate across sectors. I think when you look at countries around the world, and this includes developed countries as well, individual ministries tend to be fairly siloed and fairly focused on their own priorities. And when you're looking at a river like the Mekong or all these other environmental issues, so many of them are cross-sector as well as transnational in nature. So you not only need to have international collaboration between, for instance, the Ministry of Environment or the Ministry of Forestry in one country and that in another country, but you need to have conversations between all of the relevant ministries. So the ministries of agricultural production, of water resources, energy, forestry, fisheries, these all need to be conversing. And without an interministerial platform, you can't have that. So in that sense, Cambodia is actually quite advanced. However, when you look at the implementation side of things, that's where you run into difficulties. Even though the laws on the books are reasonable and are in fact being improved, there's an environmental code that's coming out of this National Council for Sustainable Development that would be one of the best in the world in terms of environmental protection. However, it's not on the books yet. And even if or when it gets passed, there are going to be serious questions of implementation because you have significant differences in power between ministries, You don't necessarily have the technical or human capacity to implement all of the policies as they might be written. I think one of the best examples of this globally is just sort of an environmental and social impact. So they're usually called EIAs, Environmental Impact Assessments, or ESIAs, Environment and Social Impact Assessments. They're usually required by law in in most countries for any infrastructure project that's going to happen in the region. However, in many cases, this is basically a rubber stamp. All that needs to happen is somebody from the right ministry has to say that they've approved it. So there's not necessarily the vetting. Sometimes the reasons for that are political, but often they're also simply that you don't have people with the right training and expertise in place to truly review these impact assessments and monitor them to say whether or not they're meeting the standards that are required, whether or not the impacts that they identify are accurate, and if they do identify impacts, how to mitigate them and ensure that that happens before the project moves ahead. So that's one of the biggest challenges for Cambodia and other countries is sort of this implementation phase. Yeah, I think you really identify a key challenge that many developing countries go through as they are trying to improve their environment. And so I was wondering if there are any unique initiatives from Cambodia that tries to overcome this implementation gap. I think that the Interministerial Council is actually quite unique and a very good start, partly because one of the issues that often Uh, developing countries face this, not only the silo aspect that I talked about before, but also this overlap aspect where one area, like, like an ESIA, for instance, or management of a national park, it may cross responsibilities for multiple ministries. And so neither of them wants to take responsibility for it, and it tends to get shuffled back and forth. So having an interministerial council where these issues can be discussed and potentially clarified with responsibility granted to one organization is an important idea. I think when it comes to true implementation of these laws, though, one of the biggest issues is going to be improving capacity and improving the budget for implementation. And I I think at this point, it's too early to say if some of these discussions that are happening in the NCSD will truly bear fruit on the ground. I think there's some positive signs, for instance, on like community fisheries management, which has links to the NCSD. And so there are small projects like that where you are seeing improvements. But it's too early to truly say if that's a good case study for other countries to follow. Could you talk about energy demand in Cambodia and what drives that demand? And building on the earlier ideas of implementation, how the government might be meeting those demands for energy? Yeah, so Cambodia, like the rest of developing Asia, is facing a very rapid 
um, energy demand, particularly for electricity. Cambodia has seen in some years an annual year-on-year growth of 20%, which when you think about the amount of new energy capacity that has to be added every year to meet that is mind-boggling. So like many other countries in the region, Cambodia has not been able to meet this and has often faced blackouts in the past. This is a trend that is pretty standard across the region, certainly for the developing countries in the region to have double-digit electricity demand growth. This is largely driven by two trends, industrialization and urbanization. So on one hand, when you've got larger populations coming into cities looking to have refrigeration, air conditioning, regular lighting, computer access, all of the hallmarks of development, that actually is a rapid and significant increase in electricity use per person compared to the past. So Cambodia is really rapidly moving up this development chain, particularly in areas like Phnom Penh, uh, which is a lot, a large portion of the energy demand for the whole country. But you don't necessarily have the supply or the transmission lines already built out to support that. This is an issue other countries share. And I think the planning process in response to this is also something that's been a work in progress for many countries, because historically, many countries were able to sort of set a fairly static target for a long year plan, or they were able to sort of respond to just market pressures. And moving forward, I think, given not only this rapid electricity demand, but also all the other pressures on the energy system, for instance, decarbonization, management of impacts of climate change on energy production, having a 20-year plan is no longer particularly accurate. It's a good starting point, and having these targets and policy clarity is something that any country has to have to support investment. In that particular area, Cambodia has actually made significant progress in recent years. Previously, they hadn't had a standardized, regular reporting of new energy targets, of expected projections moving forward that would really support investment, nor did they have targets that were diverse. So it was very focused on coal and hydropower as the two energy sources for Cambodia. Starting a couple of years ago, they did institute a regular process where the Ministry of Mines and Energy would actually release every couple of years some overview information. And they actually, I believe, are just about to release this newest round. I've, I've seen some internal reporting of their path forward, and there are some substantial changes from previous versions. So you can see that there is sort of this institutionalization of energy planning, which is vital if they want to keep meeting these targets to avoid blackouts. At the same time, there was a very interesting development this year because of drought. So Cambodia is very reliant on hydropower as part of its energy mix. And this year, the drought that has been hitting the entirety of the Mekong since really hard, I think since about April, actually caused rolling blackouts in Phnom Penh, where for, for every day, for on and off for a couple months, you had basically chunks of six hours around the city where different districts would lose electricity in order to keep the rest of the system working. So this really highlighted issues with the current plan because the hydropower efficiency drops so much during the dry season and particularly during a drought that you can't depend on it as a reliable source. And so moving forward, this has really prompted some rethinking among Cambodian officials. And so they moved very quickly to sign for some new solar projects to really try and diversify the system, moving from about no solar about two years ago to a goal of 20% by the mid 2020s So that's a significant step forward for Cambodia's energy system and a, sort of a nice development for the region as a whole to show how quickly things can change. And what has been the reaction of both the public but also the commercial sector to these initiatives and these policy changes? 
I think in many ways the commercial sector actually preempted government policy on this solar issue, which is what set them up for being able to so quickly move towards a 20% target. One of the big challenges, as I mentioned before, with Cambodia's energy sector is that it was very heavily concentrated in coal and hydropower. And so there was this whole list of hydropower and coal projects that had MOUs or were listed as part of the official plan for the country. And this actually included two deeply unpopular and concerning dams, the Sambor and Stung Treng dams, which had been built on the mainstream of the Mekong River in Cambodia. There are dams on the mainstream above Cambodia. China has 11 of them that are already operational right now. Laos is just about to complete the Seabori Dam, and it has one other, Don Sahong, already under construction, very close to the border with Cambodia. However, Cambodia's dams would be so close to the Tonle Sap that they would have really deep impacts on the annual flood pulse and reversal of the river that really fuels fisheries production for Cambodia. And, and I think just to underscore how important that is, the Tonle Sap Lake is the largest single freshwater fishery in the world. And it fuels the Mekong River, which catches more than 2 million tons of fish per year. So if you were to compare, for instance, the entire fish catch of North America, it still doesn't hold a candle to what the Mekong produces. So it's, it's vastly productive and it's vastly important for food security. So for those reasons, it was deeply concerning to the international community and also to domestic audiences uh, who rely on fish for protein. So both of those dams were, were still in early stages, but there's been a lot of concern, a lot of angst because of how previous dams in the region have played out. So in that sense, I think it, this is a very good shift because my understanding is that in the most recent plan that Cambodia put forward, it has removed those projects. This is an instance where the government did eventually respond to pressure from various other groups in society and concerns about the energy plans. So it's really interesting that the government has responded to the population, and it seems that some energy planning initiatives may not be feasible for society or the population. So with that in mind, what are some upcoming initiatives in energy planning besides hydropower and solar planning that Cambodia is looking at for the future? I think solar is the big one on the short-term radar um, that could really change the game for Cambodia, uh, largely because um, if you look at the economics of it, it makes sense. I mean, I think one of the thing, biggest things to look at in the regional trends with Cambodia as a case study are that um, you may have as many of these protests and pushbacks and concerns about environmental and social impacts if you want, but if it's an uneconomic alternative, then it's going to be really difficult to convince the government to change its mind. Solar, just in the last few years, has dropped in price so rapidly that it's now an economically feasible alternative. And so that, combined with all these other pressures, is really what pushed Cambodia to change um, to Cambodian policymakers to sort of change their policy. So looking to the future, I think we, we should be on the watch out for similar trends for other energy technologies. Um, biomass is probably potentially the easiest low-hanging fruit for this in that there's already a lot of agricultural production in Cambodia. And so if there can be sort of an economic argument made to turn some of that waste into a supply chain to feed biomass production, that could potentially be very useful, not only for electricity production, but for electrification in rural areas because you can have very small scale plants. Another is battery storage. Um, this is something that's only starting to be talked about now, but one of the big issues or concerns from policymakers for wind or solar as sort of variable renewable energy where the sun's not always shining and the wind is not always blowing, so you can't count on this to always be producing electricity. This reliability issue has been a real concern for policymakers whose job it is to provide constant electricity to avoid blackouts in Phnom Penh. 
So if battery storage can come online at an economically feasible rate, uh, which many analysts are predicting it will within the next five to 10 years, then this could really also relieve a lot of pressure for these large scale coal and hydropower projects, which are still included in the energy plan, even though some of the most controversial and damaging projects have been taken off. So I think from a technological standpoint, those are kind of the big ones. The other trend, which I think is potentially on the rise in Cambodia and in the region, is just more system scale, multi-sector consideration of how to decide on projects. And this is largely because the modeling technologies, a number of experts that can provide assistance in this regard have improved significantly in recent years. And so, for instance, it's possible now to look at Cambodia and say, okay, well, where are all the potential sites for dams, for solar projects, for biomass, for wind, and then including the existing hydropower and coal, and come up with different portfolios and really visualize and model out some of these trade-offs, not only for energy, but also for environment, for agricultural productivity, for, for jobs, for forestry issues, because deforestation is a major environmental challenge for Cambodia and for the region. So you can consider a lot more factors in planning than you used to be able to and come up with sort of these portfolios or scenarios that are ideal. And that's something that I think because of this silo issue had never happened in the past, but is now increasingly feasible and potentially attractive to policymakers. So we like to ask each of our speakers a fun question. So for today's episode, what is your favorite area to visit in the Mekong region and why? Uh, That's a hard one to answer because... I think one of the other things Cambodia and the region as a whole is known for is ecotourism or just tourism in general. So I have a lot of places I'd love to recommend. But I think one of my favorite places to travel to is Long Prabang in Laos. Um, and it's, 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 a nor- one of, it's the northern city in Laos. It's sort of the northernmost of the former capital kingdoms when Laos was divided into separate kingdoms. But it is known for its temples. So Long Prabang is located right along the Mekong River and the confluence with another major tributary, the Nam U. So you've got beautiful um, green development, every, green forests everywhere around. Um, and then this sort of peninsular area downtown is filled with many Buddhist temples. And so you can just walk around to the town and they're all active. They're all living. So culturally, I think it's one of the most beautiful places to visit. Um, and the food scene there is also fantastic. I think Lao food tends not to get much attention, um, but it is extremely underrated and has some really fantastic, um, unique elements that draw on. It's, it's sort of regional, better known neighbors, Vietnam and Thailand, but have their own unique Lao flair. So I would highly recommend checking it out for anyone who's looking for a vacation spot. And for those who are interested in academic issues, you can also look into all of the development challenges that I talked about today if you wanted to off the beaten path. Thank you so much for being with us on Asia Unscripted today, Courtney. We really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm glad I could contribute to the conversation. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at US Asia Institute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.